there's so much material just generally on this issue. The other thing, Cloud's asking me what has become uh, of the Church of England. Well, where do I start in a sense? And that was part of, part of the issue, trying to think about what I might say in this context. Having decided the title a little while uh, ago and then thinking, well, which way might I take this? Um, and then what was interesting as well is the fact that I feel that I live it day by day, year on year, and contending uh, in the space for the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a, there's a sense in which to um, pinpoint some of this, or to, even to explain it, um, is quite um, difficult, which perhaps adds to um, the reason why we're in some of the muddle that we're presently in today. So all I can do, uh, I've, 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 I've started on a track and um, I'm going to give you a snapshot of where I am in 2020 with the Church of England, how we get to be in, in this day. And I hope that it's useful and perhaps we can draw some things out um, in questions and answers. Also to say that there are some here with lived experience in the Church of England, with lived experience of challenging within the Church of England, um, who are attached to this, who know a great deal about the history of the Church of England, probably who have studied the history of the Church of England, the doctrine of the Church of England, more than I. Um, so uh, also um, there were people, people here that are experts, and I don't claim to be an expert um, in this, but I do, um, I hope, uh, pray um, that I'm able to speak and enlighten somewhat with regard to the lived experience of this group of people at Christian Concern um, with regard to this issue. So first of all, some statistics some from the Statistica resource. The Church, is, Church of England, so just where we are, the Church of England today, so responsible for more than 16,000 churches and 42 cathedrals in England. In 218, the average weekly attendance of the Church of England uh, was 870,000 people. That's less than 1% of the population. Um, in, but in, note this, that in 2018, just over a third of people in the United Kingdom still identify as being Christian. That's pretty good news. Um, according to this particular research company, 14% Church of England compared with two-thirds um, in uh, two-thirds of people identified as Christian um, in 1983. So we've lost a lot of people that might identify, but it's quite interesting. That's still a third. Um, this is printed by the Church of England, or this is actually a Church of England um, publication research. Um, from the Ministry Statistics Summary. So it's available on the website and it's printed out for you tonight. At the end of 2018, there were nearly 20,000 active clergy serving in the Church of England, around 7,000 of whom are likely retired clergy continuing to serve. Um, 7,700 7, stipendary clergy, 320 of whom were ordained during 2018. 2,920 self-supporting clergy in parochial posts, 180 of whom were ordained during 2018. 1,040 ordained chaplains, so that's in healthcare, education and the armed forces and prisons. There were 700, uh, 230 clergy with permission to officiate. They are mostly retired. 
590 ordinands began training in 2018. 8,240 readers licensed lay ministers in active ministry with a further 290 entering training during 2018. And 8,030 oblate tertiaries, associates or outer brothers, sisters reported across 69 religious communities uh, with recognised communities reporting to further 320 members within uh, the Church of England. Just under a third, 30% of those in ordained ministry in 2018 are female. That shows also a gradual increase in women. There were 27% in 2014. The average age in 2018 of stipendiary clergy was 52.4 years of age. Self-supporting uh, self non-stipendiary ministers were aged on average 62 years of age. And those with permission to officiate, so bearing out the statistic of people um, having permission to officiate as retired, is 74, 75 years of age. And the total number of stipendiary clergy has remained similar over the last few years, but has dropped by around 3% since 2014. Women make up 29% of the stipendiary ministers in 2018, which has increased gradually from 26% in 2014. A quarter of stipendiary clergy in senior posts, um, diocesan suffragan bishops, cathedral dean, cathedral other and archdeacon in 2018 were, were female. So note, um, female bishops were permitted in 2014, uh, but for these senior posts, we've now got about a quarter uh, of the leaders in the Church of England in senior positions are women. And that's increased gradually over the five years and by more than half um, from 16% in 2014. So 16% in those positions in 2014. So we've seen quite a sharp increase since that time. In 2018, 92% of stipendiary clergy were full-time um, working in parochial roles, 500 ordinations in total. More males were ordained in 2018 than females. Um, the average age of ordination in 2018 was 45 years. Um, higher for women uh, at 48 to 49 years of age and lower for men, 42.3 years of age. For stipendiary ordinations, the average age in 2018 was 40 self-supporting 56 years of age and in 2018 a higher proportion of ordinations were to stipendiary posts 64% compared with 57% um, and in a, a five-year low in 2014. Um, <coughs> the amount of the of ordinands beginning in training in 2018 was 590 in total. In 2018 as in 2017 more women than men began training, 54% uh, versus 45%, a proportion which has increased over the past uh, five years from 43% of women in 2014. Note, this is different, however, to ordinations in 2018, where despite those statistics, more men went through to ordination than women. 
A third of all Aldenans beginning their training in 2018 were aged under 35. Uh, I think it's also an interesting statistic, and more than half were aged under 45. I think it's interesting because I think that the people coming through um, that are under 35 are very often true lovers of Jesus Christ, um, believers in the Church of England, um, and passionate to serve out God. So, so I think the young, some of the young life coming through um, knows, knows, knows the gospel. Um, and that, that's, that, make, that accounts for that, the, this kind of the, the younger ones um, that, are, that are coming through, believing in the system. Also, um, statistics, um, a very important arm of the, the church, the Church of England schools, uh, that we have approximately, so if you think that 890,000 attend an Anglican church every week, in our schools, we have one million children attending Church of England schools. That's a lot of souls. We have 4,700 schools. So think, imagine that, 4,700 schools operating, operating five, well, five days a week to seven days a week, right? Schools are open a lot of the time versus the uh, 16,000 churches. Uh, 15 million people alive today went to a Church of England school. A quarter of primary schools and over 200 secondary schools are Church of England. Um, with 250 sponsored and over 650 converter academies, the church is the biggest sponsor of academies in England. So, the Church of England has responsibility, has state responsibility in a sense, for the education of the children. Um, well, it's a huge responsibility, it's a huge position of influence. Um, over 500 independent schools declare themselves to be Church of England in ethos. Across the country, Church of England clergy dedicate one, a million hours. These, these, these are statistics from the Church of England um, ministry statistics. Um, every year to work with children. There are 22,500 foundation governors in church schools, recruited, trained and supported by dioceses. Each diocese runs a diocesan board of education so it employs a group of people to support the education work in the diocese. Um, and that re represents an annual investment by the church of, around of over 15 million pounds. So that's a huge presence on the ground, isn't it? In the, in, still in, 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 this, in, this, in the nation, there's a, just on the statistics, there's a huge working presence on the ground. Book of Common Prayer, 1549, revised in 1662. I just want to go to this because it, it, um, it outlines the, the liturgy, the backdrop, the catechism the, of, the, of, the, of the Church of England. For we are fully persuaded in our judgments and we here profess it to the world that the book as it stood before established by law doth not contain in it anything. Remember, this, this book uh, was, has to be passed pass, pass by the Houses of Parliament for the Church of England, all right? 
doth not contain it anything contrary to the word of God or to sound doctrine or which a godly man may not with a good conscience use and submit unto or which is not fairly defensible against any that shall oppose the same. It is, if it shall be allowed, such just and favourable construction as in common equity ought to be allowed to all human writings, especially such as are set forth by authority and even to the very best translations of the Holy Scripture itself. So basically what the church is doing here by the Book of Common Prayer is setting out its doctrinal position for the world to see and placing it into a legal framework by which the church should abide and by which the church should believe and which is recognised within the law of the land. To change the Book of Common Prayer, there was an attempt in 1927, which failed uh, and, and hasn't been attempted since then but in, within the Houses of Parliament. Our, our general aim, therefore, in this understanding was not to gratify this or that party in any of their unreasonable demands, because this is the preface to the, church, to, to the Book of Common Prayer, but to do that which to our best understandings we conceive might most tend to the preservation of peace and unity in the church. And what is peace and unity in the church? Because we often hear about unity in the Church of England today. It's the procuring of reverence and the exciting of piety and devotion to what? To the public worship of God and the cutting off occasion from them that seek occasion of cavil or quarrel against the liturgy of the church. So unity is about the discipline of those that seek a cavil or quarrel against the liturgy, which is in canon law, is in law within the Church of England. For they so all the matter that the whole Bible, or the greatest part thereof, should be read over once every year, intending thereby that the clergy, and especially such as were ministers in the congregation, should, by often reading and meditation in God's word, be stirred up to godliness themselves, and be more able to exhort others by wholesome doctrine, and to confute them that were adversaries to the truth. And further, that the people by daily hearing of Holy Scripture read in the church might continually profit more and more in the knowledge of God and be more inflamed with the love of his true religion. See, you can see why young men get fired up, young men and women, but young men get fired up with this kind of language and liturgy in terms of the pursuit of godliness, the pursuit of truth. Why people, you know, th th this, this is what is there at the heart um, of this, pub, this, this construct, this vehicle for the gospel. And then moving to marriage, this is very serious within the life of the Book of Common, of the Book of Common Prayer in terms of liturgy. Um, I mean, there's a reason why the bands are read in public. So marriage is a public act. Um, it's taken very seriously. Um, first, the bands were all to be married together must be published in the church three several Sundays. This is notice so that if anybody re has reason to think that these two people should not be married, then they should declare it. Um, and by the day and time appointed for solemnization of matrimony, the person to be married should come into the body of the church with their friends and neighbours and they're standing together, the man on the right and the woman on the left. The priest shall say, so jaws, jaws together, 
the words that we know, marriage is an honourable state instituted of God in the time of man's innocency, signifying the mystical union between Christ and his church, which holy estate Christ adorned and beautified with his presence. Think of this in the context of what I've just read. And first miracle that he wrought in Cana, and is commended of St. Paul to be honourable among all men, and therefore is not by any to be enterprised, nor taken in hand, unadvisedly, likely, or wantonly, to satisfy men's carnal lusts and appetites. Look at the language, like brute beasts that have no understanding, but reverently, discreetly, soberly, and in the fear of God, duly considering the causes for which matrimony was obtained. Furthermore, it goes on to say this in the Book of Common Prayer, it was ordained for a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication, um, and that it was something um, uh, that such persons as, not, as have not the gift of continency might marry and keep themselves undefiled members of Christ's body. Um, and it was also ordained for the mutual society, health and comfort that the one ought to have with the other, into which holy estate these two persons present, come now and must be joined. And then, this is, this is important too, uh, in terms of my snapshot, um, within the Book of Common Prayer, I require and charge you both, as ye will answer at the dreadful day of judgment. When did we last hear the dreadful day of judgment mentioned in public worship? Or uh, um, when the secrets of all hearts shall be declared that, either of if, uh, that either, if either of you know any impediment, while you may not be lawfully joined together in matrimony, you do confess it now. I'm just saying this against the backdrop of the talks that we have been having in Living in Love and Faith for many years now over what the doctrine of matrimony is in the Church of England. Well, it's set out in the Book of Common Prayer. Hours and hours and now millions of pounds, well, hundreds of thousands of pounds. It's gone over, I know it's gone over one million. I, I just don't want to exaggerate. In terms of all the conversations that have gone out across this, across the land, across the diocese, um, on what matrimony is, on what marriage is, on what human sexuality is. Well, it's set out in the Bible, <coughs> uh, and it's set out even in the document that stands, that remains standing, that is the Book of Common Prayer. Thirty-nine articles, uh, marriage of priests, that are commanded by God's law, either to vow the estate of single life or to abstain from marriage. Therefore, it is lawful for them as for all other Christian men to marry. But then, then it says this, that person which by open, this is um, 33, that person which by open denunciation of the church is rightly cut off from the unity of the church and excommunicated ought to be taken of the whole multitude of the faithful as a heathen and publican until he be openly reconciled by penance and received into the church by a judge that have authority thereunto. So here, someone that does, has open denunciation of the church um, is to be excommunicated. We have bishops who are in open denunciation of the church and they are celebrated, they are promoted. And you see here what you have um, is a system of um, 
biblical account uh, accountability, but also discipline. The discipline of those that do not adhere to the truth is that they shall be excommunicated, those that lead. And that is actually for the unity of God's people, for the unity of the church. So discipline, church discipline, it talks about penance. If, if there is penance, they shall be reconciled. So it's never, so that, that's, an, that's also an important thing to remember. Um, but the discipline is for the good of the unity of the church. And today we, when we speak of unity, it is somehow about being unified well, sort of around everything in terms of the all truth within the church, whatever we feel about the truth, is the same. And that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. When in fact here what is clear is that those that do not uphold the authority of the Bible, I think one of the other things that's very confusing just generally is that they will say that they do and the way that we read scripture is different. The way that we interpret things is different. But I've pointed to the Book of Common Prayer because that, because the Book of Common Prayer outworks the liturgy of the Church of England. It's what it believes in. And then we know the coronation oath. Um, the Queen, uh, 1953, um, will you to the utmost of your power maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? Will you to the utmost of your power maintain the Protestant reformed religion established by law? So again, the position of the Church of England is established by law in this nation for public worship. And the gospel... Um, is uh, the laws of God and the true profession of, of, of the gospel is therefore established within the law in this, in, in terms of working this through um, by way of argumentation. Will you maintain and preserve inviolably the settlement of the Church of England and the doctrine, which I've snapshotted, <laughs> worship, discipline, discipline and government thereof as by law established in England? And will you preserve unto the bishops and clergy of England and to the churches, they're committed to their charge, all such rights and privileges as by the law or do sh shall appertain to them or any of them. So the privileges that are maintained to the priests and the clergy and the bishops, the privileges of the gospel, the pri privileges of the posi position of being an established church within law. And she's seated, she takes the Bible um, the Archbishop says, um, I keep your majesty ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the role for the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes. We present you with this book, the most valuable thing this world uh, affords. I, mean, I often repeat these words, but they are extraordinary and astonishing words not to be, because they're now so familiar to me, um, they're not familiar to everyone, but they're very familiar to me in terms, because it's always for me, painting a picture of where we stand, where we stood um, at the beginning at 65 in my lifetime, I, was, I say. Um, by law, constitutionally, as a nation. Here is wisdom, this is the royal law, these are the lively oracles of God. That's an incredible image. Now, Another statement in terms of where the battle rages are within the public space, again, one that I use often. 
attributed to Martin Luther, but if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the word of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing. You see, one of the issues here is in the 1970s, 1980s, when I was just, you know, when I was beginning to think things, th think things through sort of a, at, a, at an adult level, the arguments were around virgin birth. The arguments were around the resurrection, um, the historicity of scripture. Do you, I was, do you remember we were all doing those courses in that time about making those arguments? Those things are never talked about now. Um, so um, in th those are no longer the, the, the issues, you know, uh, to do with confessing and professing. Um, we, the issues now are on personhood, made in the image of God, male and female, it's Genesis 1 issues, being created by God, a marriage, one man and one woman, what it means really to be human. God's, God's constru construction for life, his, that, that, his way of living, how he sets that out. Again, which the Book of Common Prayer sets out for us, what public worship really means, what truth really means. Where the battle rages, so in 1980, it would have been over the virgin birth or the resurrection. I mean, we had bishops denying the resurrection in the 1980s. Well, today we've got bishops denying marriage. I mean, God is very, very patient. As I get older, I realize how, just how patient he is. We did have bishops denying virgin birth and resurrection in, in the 1980s. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all the battlefronts besides is mere flight and disgrace. And I say this because, you see, there are um, so many people who profess the name of Jesus. So many, so many bishops are professing, they talk about Jesus. So many people that are actively seeking a revisionist agenda there are, in the Church of England talk about the love of Jesus Christ, the peace of Jesus Christ, knowing Jesus Christ, look at the Ozan Foundation, look at the LGBT movement within, within the Church of England. So they're all professing Christ. They're all using his name. They're all talking about, per they'll even speak in tongues. They will sing. In Christ Church in Oxford, we've got LGBT friendly services this week. They will all be taught, they'll take the Eucharist, they'll talk about the body and the presence of Christ. They profess Christ. And confuse, confuse truth in the public space. And they are not disciplined, and they have not been disciplined for years. They have gained position within the Church of England, um, the revisionists, and there is force, certainly at the higher. Uh, the further people go up in the Church of England, it, become, it seems to be more liberal. I want to say about the Church of England, there are lots of great men and women on the ground. And I think that this stuff does a great disservice to the men and women on the ground because the, the national witness is, what, is a confused voice and that does not help the gospel, the, the people that are ministering to the 870,000 people that attend every week, or, and it certainly doesn't help all the people that aren't in the church because I think, well, where, why do I want to bother going to that? What can happen to a state church? Right, church. Um, I mean, I could, there are a number of churches I could have used, but I just want to, what's interesting about the, the Reich church was that it was Protestant and all the Protestant, um, 
all the Protestant groups gathered together and they were allowed to continue worship and holding services um, if they were loyal to the state. So there you've got the cross and the swastika. Yeah? You hear, now, it's, so, the, so, the, the, so the thing about that was that you, you, you had, Jew, they had to take parts of the Bible out because in order to eradicate the Jewish memory, like the Old Testament, right? They had to, um, there's stories, aren't there, of congregations singing louder as the trains to the concentration camps went by, full of people that were going to meet um, their end, in the, in the, were going to be gassed in the chambers. The state imposed a bishop who would conform to, their, to, to Nazism, to state socialism, Ludwig, Ludwig Müller. Who can imagine such a thing? It's grotesque. Now, of course, but who could imagine a church that supported apartheid uh, or the slave trade, um, South Africa or, during, or churches during slave, slave trade times, South, um, you know, America, so on and so forth, okay? So let's just think about all, the, just contextualise all of these things, but I'm just giving this as an example. It was the Christians also that resisted, the true Christians that also resisted this. It's always true Christians that resist the muddle and the mess. God is always finding a way. And that's why, you know, with 30 people in a room, he can find a way to speak, to, to, he finds a way. When you go back to your communities, he finds a way. But this, one of the greatest resistors uh, within, who, who, who paid dearly for it, of course, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this is what he said. There are three possibilities for action that the church can take vis-a-vis -vis the state. First, to question the state as to the legitimate state character of its actions. That is, making the state responsible for what it does. Um, now, I think we need to think about this in our, where we are um, and our own churches, because we may not all be from Church of England churches, but we also need to think of it very peculiarly with regard to if you are the state church, what your role and mandate is, especially when you think about the, the doctrine that I've just um, read out to you. So you question the state as to the legitimate state character of its actions. That is making the state responsible for what it does. Well, the bishops have a unique role in that because they're in the House of Lords. That's what they're meant to do. They're meant to question the actions of the state. That's why they were placed there. It's a position of privilege granted because we wanted the church to be the prophet and the priest to the king. That is exactly why they are there. And making the state responsible for what it does. But also, let me say, it's also just as the bride of Christ out with, you've got the state church, there's a role. There's a, there's a role to disciple the institution. But there's also a role for us, the, the, the true bride of Christ, Individually, and then with it, to, to, to think about what we do here. And that the church has an unconditional obligation towards the victims of any societal order, even if they do not belong to the Christian community. So where people are suffering as a result of state actions, we have a duty as the church to pick up the pieces. So it's our stuff, it's all, it's the st and we do that. Boy, do we do that. Every place I go, you'll see the street pastors, people helping people in poverty, the food banks, the, who, Meals on Wheels. Who are all these services done by? Who are these services led by? Very, very often the church. Usually the church. Imagine if the church moved out from the sort of social services on the social service good works on the ground in towns and communities. 
So let us work for the good of all. These are both ways in which the church, in its freedom, conducts itself in the interest of a free state. In times when the laws are changing, and I suggest this is, where, this is definitely where we have been in the last two decades here in the United Kingdom, the church may under no circumstance neglect either of these duties. But the third possibility is not just to bind up the wounds of the victims, and I think we've done a lot of that. Yes? And there are so many victims, because when you lose truth, there's a lot of victims. When you, when you start losing truth from the public space, you, you have victims as a result of it. Beneath, um, when you, you, not just to bind up the wounds of the victims beneath the wheel, but to seize the wheel itself. Um, so we have um, 16,000 churches. We have 1 million children in our care, 4,700 schools. That's the wheel. And the idea that in the public space, um, the idea that we've just given the wheel to someone else, the idea that we don't claim our belief system, if you dig deep enough, upheld in our law, uh, the idea that we just handed it over is shocking, staggering. It hurts. Um, How have we handed over the wheel? I believe that if the church had stood in 2011, when David Cameron announced that he's going to introduce same-sex marriage, um, I, 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 I say this, I, I, stand, I, stand, I stand by this, and I don't mean just the Church of England, I mean, and I know we're talking about the Church of England tonight, I just want to say as an aside, where are we all? Where, where are any of the, where are the, where, where, where is the, other, other church movements do not have the locus of the church in terms of public, in terms of, they don't, they, they haven't got 26 seats in the House of, House of Lords. They haven't got the kind of the, 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 the book of common prayer within the, recognised within the legal system. But where are we? God, of course God could use another movement to be a great disruptor. Where is the free church? Where is the, the free church generally? Where is the, the evangelical church? Where is the Pentecostal church? Where are the Baptists? The Methodist United Reform have, have, have left truth at a, at a public level, doctrinally. I believe that if the church, uh, church first of all, the, the real church in the country had stood, then... Um, we wouldn't have same-sex marriage. Um, I believe if the Church of England had stood, I believe that if the bishops had stood, we would not have same-sex marriage in our nation. I believe that if the, church, if, if the Church of England bishops had said this will be a crisis um, and you will make the Queen, the Queen will have to um, disavow her vow. You will make her act contrary to her vows. Um, that would have been a moment. Instead, the Church of England, for, since 2011, 2012, has been talking about what marriage is within the Church of England. So, if, you know, and by the time we get some kind of answer, and by the way, we're not going to have an answer. Living in love and faith is not going to give an answer. It's not going to change the doctrine, but it's going to give ways in which we talk about this more on the ground. So it's more talking. But the, the, the issue would have, is going to be way moved on, and it has way moved on. It's moved on to trans, it's going to be tran transgender, Transhumanism, wrote, wrote the whole robotics issue. 
um, polyamory. It's really shifting. Islam, all right. This is what Justin Welby said. You've got a full copy of the speech in this because, again, what Justin Welby always does is says some good stuff and then some stuff that's just a little bit muddled. And we must pray for Justin. We must pray for these people. But it says this. It's clearly essential. This is what he said in the House of Lords when he voted against same-sex marriage on the 3rd of June, 2013. It's clearly essential that stable and faithful same-sex relationships should, where those involved want it, be recognised and supported with as much dignity and the same legal effect as marriage. Do you see what you do there? You concede, we'd already done that by the way in 2004, the part of the problem was that the argument was made in civil partnerships, the whole, and allowing priests to be, men to be civilly partnered and become priests and to say they're abstinent when everyone knew that civil partnerships was all about sex. It was all about, it was always about that. Um, Although the majority of bishops who voted during the whole passage of the civil partnerships bill through your lordship's house were in favour of civil partnerships. You see, they should have been making the case in 2003, 2004 for marriage and they weren't. So you give way, you give way on the, on the wheel at any point, you, you give way. Um, it is also absolutely true that the church has not often not served the LGBT communities in the way that it should, so always apologising. When I think that mainly... No, not we're not perfect but I think that true Christians really love we really love if we won't bind up the the wounds of the uh, of our gay community of our trans community then we shouldn't speak we should go and hide we need to be prepared to go and bind up the wounds and point them to the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ but and I think that mainly we do I think that's where the heart of a true believer is and has to be. But we are continually publicly saying we've been terribly dreadful and we're sorry for it. I express my sadness and sorrow for that considerable failure. There have been notable exceptions, such as my predecessor, the late Archbishop Ramsey, who vigorously supported decriminalisation in the 1960s. It's also necessary to express, as has been done already, total rejection of homophobic language, which is wrong and more than that, sickening. So homophobic language, so turn away from men act, having sex with men. Is that homophobic? No. You can be changed, is that homophobic? No. But you see it is. That's what the, how the world counts it. It moves on to say, for these and many other reasons, those of us in the churches and faith groups who are extremely hesitant about this bill, in many cases hold the view because we think that traditional marriage is a cornerstone of society. And rather than adding a new and valued institution along it, the same gender relationships, which I would personally strongly support. So do you see, he's saying, we can't change marriage, that's too difficult, and it's important, but I strongly support an alternative legal construct for same-sex couples, which looks like marriage, which already was there. This is not a faith issue. Oh, yes, it is. Oh, yes, it is. And the Church of England is instituted in the state for public worship to say what marriage is. That's its job. That's its structure. This is not a faith issue, although we are deeply grateful for the attention that the government and other places have paid to issues of religious freedom. 
So now the issue becomes a religious freedom issue. Well, by 2011, 2012, we've had the cases of people losing their jobs uh, for speaking out for marriage between a man and woman. We've had the civil registrars, we've had the social workers, we've had the adoption agencies who've closed because they won't place children with a mother and a father. Therefore, with much regret, with much regret, but entire conviction, <laughs> I cannot support the bill as it stands. You've, you've got the full speech printed out for you and it's on, it's on hand, hand side. But I've been with um, the Billy Graham Association today with the closure of the um, Franklin Graham um, events. And this is from a letter that the secretary to the correspondent secretary to the Archbishop of Canterbury, Sir Justin Welby, sent in relation to Franklin Graham, uh, every event closing down on Franklin Graham. All right? So this is the letter, an extract from the letter. The decision that the venues have taken do not necessarily constitute an infringement on freedom of religion and belief. It does. Those responsible for the venue must consider, on the one hand, the freedom of those holding the event to exercise their freedom of speech, religion and belief, and on the other hand, the care and protection of people who might feel threatened and upset by the gospel. It is unlikely that the reason for the cancellation of the events is the gospel or Mr Graham's faith in Jesus. Rather, it is more likely to be as a result of reported comments and associations made by Mr Graham and the offence they have caused. The gospel in itself is not hate speech. It is highly unfortunate that at times those who preach it have at other times spoken in ways that prejudice or discriminate against others. This is always regretful and does not help to further the kingdom, capital K. So there you have Franklin Graham speaks the gospel plainly. Got Franklin Graham speaks about sin, generally. He talks about the cross, the costly, the cost of the cross. Costly grace, not cheap grace. Um, but he is not backed up by the Archbishop of Canterbury. And so, um, in terms of where this, this third will seizing the, the, the seizing of the the seizing of the will on the cornerstone marriage within society, I'm now going to play Bishop of Liverpool. Paul Bays from Liverpool, number 26. As the world listens to us today, the world needs to hear us say that LGBTI orientation and identity is not a crime, not a sickness and not a sin. We must distinguish between an ascetic and a therapeutic approach. In the church, we are certainly called to help one another to conform our lives to Jesus Christ and to live lives of holiness. But we do not need to engage people in healing therapy if they are not sick. The banning on conversion We disagree, friends, about the way forward for LGBTI people who want to live in holiness. Some here, Angus for one, will insist that celibacy is the only way. Others here, including me, would want to offer the choice of celibacy or faithful, permanent, stable relationship to LGBTI people, just as we routinely offer it to heterosexual cisgender people in our church. But these disagreements 
agreements are not at issue today. What matters here is that a therapeutic model is not appropriate if LGBTI orientation identity is not a sickness. And if the church suggests that really actually it is, then our many statements opposing homophobia are cancelled and the world will think that in fact we really do believe LGBTI people to be second-class humans no matter how they behave. And this is not acceptable to me and I hope not to this synod. That's why I will vote for this motion or for Jamie's amendment if the synod prefers it. Later this month at home we will celebrate Liverpool Pride with which I am privileged and proud to be associated. We celebrate pride later than most people because of the death of Michael Causa, an 18-year-old gay man who died in August 2008 following a brutal homophobic attack. He did not die because he was sick or sinful or because he had committed a crime. He died because he was hated. In a culture where that hate was ignored or avoided or tolerated, I move to the next one just because of time. We're, um, this now, this whole, this whole tens of thousands of pounds, hundreds of thousands of pounds, living in love and faith, what the Church of England thinks on marriage. This is, this is, these are the materials. This is the launch of the materials uh, on living in love and faith. What I find difficult is that good men are, are, part, are, are becoming part of this, lending their name, their ministries to it, and here's the muddle. Something you might not know about me is that I love covering all my books in plastic. I'm a sort of wannabe librarian who never quite made the grade. I speak Italian quite badly. I love elephants. I think there's probably about 60 to 80 somewhere throughout the house. I enjoy touring on a bicycle. I cycled with my husband across the United States and that's four and a half thousand miles. I'm a very bad golfer, if that's any help. My name is Rosemary Mallet. I live right in the centre of the city of Durham. I'm the Bishop of Newcastle. I'm married and my wife's name is Fiona. I'm the chair of the Pastoral Advisory Group. We're here to tell you about these, which are the pastoral principles for living well together. The principles are all about how we help the church be the best we can in terms of being a welcoming, inclusive community for all of us in particular LGBTI plus people. This is a series of cards which you can use in a parish setting for us to talk about openly, in particular addressing what we've regarded and called the six pervasive evils. So the first principle is acknowledging prejudice. We need to discover and own our prejudices because once you're aware of them, they don't dominate and rule you anymore. The second principle is about speaking into silence. All too often we've been unwilling even to discuss matters that are really important in this area. The third principle talks about the need to address ignorance for us each to hear other people's stories and to know really why they've made the decisions they've made. The fourth principle is about casting out fear. If we're afraid of somebody because they are different to us, we aren't able to relate properly. The fifth principle encourages us to, to just admit hypocrisy. But so often in the Church of England, people have said one thing and done another. The sixth principle is that we must pay attention to power. Most of us have power within our situations. We need to recognise the power that we have 
and then to use that power for good. You might like I'm to now take going a to play a clip from the Archbishop of York, um, who um, was uh, talking about what the common good was. Um, and this was something um, that we were uh, talking about post Grenville and the role of the Church of England. And when he when he talked about that, he said that it did not it was not exclusively Christian. The name of Jesus Christ should not be put into it, or the fact that it was Christian should be put into it, because we derive uh, the common good from many sources. And what was surprising about that uh, was um, the, the the massive contrast that is vis-a-vis -vis our own position, the position of the Church of England within. The state. And so again, with the greatest of respect, Your Grace, the Archbishop of York, to put the gospel at the heart of a message to the nation on the political good, on the common good, is what we should do. For the Bible sets out how now to live in a world that is lost and is hurting. on the Archbishop of York to respond. Again, to use my old um, imagery, some more bubbles have appeared in, on the Christmas tree, some with varying abilities, some with great difficulty. On um, number 50, there are many things there that one wouldn't want to dis disagree with really, but in order to give a full response requires very well detailed argument. So what I'm going to say, this actually in my book doesn't seem to add anything as far as I understand to the motion we're trying to do today. And then 48, which restricts the language of common good purely into the Bible. There are many traditions that have got a concept of common good. And you know the real joy of the Church of England is what the Queen said at Lambeth Palace uh, at the beginning of her um, Diamond Jubilee. She said that our Church of England is often, um, you know, not only misunderstood but also misappreciated. Its role is not to defend the Church of England but to serve the whole community. If you're going to be serving the whole community, please don't limit our language. I want to moan like yes moaned. The word became flesh. And sadly, we are now making it word and word and word again. Resist the amendments. Valuing all God's children, the guidance for the Church of England schools. So for those one million children that we have, the, valuing, um, the guidance on the Church of England on challenging homophobic, biphobic and transphobic um, bullying. So you can perhaps turn these up in your packs if that's useful to you. Um, but again, it, the, all, all of the language that is being promoted to our children is the language of the world, is the language of Stonewall, is the language of the homosexual uh, lobby, not the language of creation, not the language of the Book of Common Prayer, not the language of the Bible. So that is one million uh, souls, one million uh, uh, children in our care are being taught, uh, are essentially being taught the stuff of the state. Um, are being taught what, it, what human sexuality is as the state currently defines it. But in fact, the schools belong to us. We've handed them to the state. Even if we say technically they don't, do we not think, as the institution that runs them, that we should be speaking uh, to shape, to seize the wheel with regard 
uh, to that. Again, Justin Welby um, in this talks about um, the Church of England vision for education, deeply Christian and serving the common good. We offer four basic elements which together form an ecology of abundant life but challenging homophobic bullying and how to offer a safe and welcoming place to all God's children. So again, always there's this assumption that everyone, well, we are all God's children, but no matter what we do, you know, it's kind of the homophobic, all of the, all, no matter how we, what we do, however we identify the welcome, it's the, this is, this is what it all, it all means, no matter what you believe. Um, the updated version from 2014 now to 2019 uh, seeks to offer few further guidance and support and places it within this vision. All bullying includes homophobic, biphobic and transforming bu bullying causes profound damaging leading to high levels of mental health disorders, self-harm, depression and suicide. Do we know that when children know the Lord Jesus Christ, when they know that their identity is in Jesus Christ, they live fruitful, amazing lives? <laughs> The evidence, the, the social science is good for children of faith. We diminish them. We diminish the truth. And these children are in, our, they're in the Church of England institutions. And yet we have handed it over. And, we, and when we give, you know, how do we value all God's children? Well, essentially, this is the language of how we're doing it. The guidance helps course offer the Christian message of love, joy, and the celebration of our humanity without exception or exclusion. Then... This is a, an evangelical man and a, a believing man, but it was on his watch that he they published guidance for parishes, planning service to help transgender people mark their transition and issued pastoral guidance on that. So again, my, my sadness is that the, very often those that are faithful men and women on the ground Look to a man who is a good man like this to lead. But the position he has been placed in, you know, that moment when the truth is under attack, he introduces on the floor of Synod transgender guidance. So the men that we need to lead um, are placed in this position. And why is it catastrophic? Well, Nigel and Sally Rowe, um, Six-year-olds, now there are three six-year-olds cross-dressing in a small school in the Isle of Wight. Um, and the letter, that this came from the di diocese. This is the Isle of Wight letter from, from, the, uh, from, the, the, from the diocese. Um, the school is legally bound to respect the wishes of the pupils and parents involved. We're aware that both pupils and the wider may, may react neg negatively to ambiguous expressions of gender. Um, but here are examples of transphobic behaviour, an in inability to accept a trans, trans person's, a trans, transgender person is actually a real female or male. So this is for six-year-olds, and the parents of the children who are disturbed by a six-year-old boy becoming a girl in the class and write and go into the school, are very involved in the school, are being called transphobic. This comes from the... Um, Church of England leadership, the, the Church of England um, governors, but is, they have been in consultation with the diocese. So the diocese in uh, the Isle of Wight, in the Portsmouth, uh, Portsmouth diocese, education body, supports children uh, <coughs> transitioning. 
So the outworking of the stuff that happens on the floor of Synod, the outworking of, of, of all of this on the ground is that six-year-old children in Church of England schools um, are being the pastoral, the pastoral push is to affirm them in their transition. That from that one child, there are now three children that are transitioning in that school that are living out in the opposite gender. And our parents, Bible-believing Christians, are now homeschooling their children. I, but the, I, but so, the, so this is the outworking of not holding to the truth. Similarly, uh, John Parker, a governor in a school, same thing was happening in his, in his school in Essex. And the, the Bishop of um, Chelmsford, now the uh, Archbishop of York designate, um, there are three schools in the Essex diocese where children are transitioning. And the diocesan education body in Essex um, has upheld, has not supported any resistance to that beautiful, quiet, caring, loving, measured, honest resistance. The church, the church's official, the official um, organs, um, the diocesan education board, the bishops uh, that were acting. Um, with the Bishop of Chelmsford being the, the, obviously the lead on it within the, the diocese, have all helped uh, the children to transition. Not, not, not literally helped them, but I've said, have not supported those that have questioned, have, have questioned it. And so when this broke in the press about John Parker ask, um, asking this, the Bishop of Chelmsford issued a letter to the um, clergy in his diocese saying this, the story, which has been energetically promoted by a pressure group, that's Christian concern, centres on a vulnerable child going through an extremely difficult and sensitive period in their life. So the vulnerable child is in their life. Yes, no, the, I'm actually aware that everything said in public on this matter has the potential to cause harm to this child. So Christian concern, you're energetically promoting this agenda and you could harm the child. In fact, don't you know the suicide rates of trans transgender children? Yes. John Parker and I, we've always had a, a warm relationship, but, and it moves on. I support the actions taken by the Board of Education and the school in question. They have done right by the child. This does not mean that I or they do not understand and respect the concerns raised by John and others. And we will continue to work with schools about their new use of external training providers because Mermaid had gone in. That reflection has begun. I hope and pray that you, my sisters and brothers in the Chelmsford Diocese, will receive this letter in the spirit of reconciliation with which it is sent. All right. So the spirit of reconciliation is get with the program. Be quiet. Not do the right thing. That kind of the, the charge to excommunicate. The charge to speak the truth when a, when a leader We've got to love, I didn't mean excommunicate, I mean love, we've got to love the children. The loving thing in our schools to do is to look after those children, to offer them help, to look after those family, families. That's the really loving thing to do, is to take the children by the hand um, and to help them live in, in the God-given identity um, that, 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 that he has for them. 
After he did all of this, and essentially with John Parker, who, who had sought to hold his bishop to account, had gone out of fellowship with, his, with, with, with the Bishop of Chelmsford, and there are a number of good men in the Chelmsford Diocese. What I am shocked by is that a church with that sort of teaching, uh, with that evangelical heritage, should then have the Bishop of Chelmsford <laughs> come and inaugurate, license, um, the new incumbent. And so what you had was after all of this had passed and John Parker had actually had the courage to face up to the bishop and on both marriage and on uh, transgenderism, who's now, bear in mind this bishop is now the, the, will be the Archbishop of York, that it was him that then went there and um, it was, um, he was, and this was also led by a leading member um, of the evangelical um, Anglican community, a man called David Banting, was actually at the service with Stephen Cottrell. I think that's quite serious. I think when all of this has occurred um, and John, the, what John Parker was seeking to do, um, the, the idea that then the church would have the bishop come and license, this, this, this has happened last year, about, about 10 months ago, come and license the new incumbent. Um, what does that say to anyone that wants to stand and be faithful, wants to take a challenge? Um, and my experience also of all of this is that the good and faithful men get worn out. Um, so you have men um, that are, there are the ones that are really um, the ones that are kind of entrepreneurial. Um, they leave. Um, others get burnt out, depressed. And I don't mean this for everyone, all right. Or they just keep their heads down, doing good and faithful work. But the problem is, then you've got good and faithful work going on on the ground with the eight hundred and seventy thousand people that are coming to our churches. We've got 66 million people in this nation. Remember, 870,000 versus the 1 million in the schools. Look what we've done to our schools. Church of England transgender guidance was used against the doctor. We agreed the theological evidence. We had Martin Parsons, but they produced the church. Of the, the opposition produced the Church of England's guidance against us. So he lost his job. Um, because he wouldn't say that a biological male was a female on official paper. And the Church of England's guidance was used to say, not all Christians believe what you do. You see what happens when we depart from truth. And, and in cha chaplaincies, we're having Muslim chaplains are taking over, and Christians and Anglicans very often are... The Anglican chaplains, because they're meant to be Anglican chaplains, Muslim chaplains are coming in, but very often the really vibrant Christian work, we've now got three cases where the Anglican chaplain has sided with or been silent on, in fact, four cases, silent on usually the kind of charismatic Pentecostal guy that's coming in there speaking sin, repentance, transformation, that's cases. And then we've got also on, on abortion, another issue, uh, the bishops weren't present when it was ex the extension to, to Northern Ireland, didn't vote. 
Um, bishops are weak on this, and I was going to play a clip, but I won't because time is... The other thing I think we've got to really look at is um, <coughs> these within um, conservative, well, particularly of uh, late conservative Anglicanism, there's this um, <coughs> dreadful issue around men that have been held in the highest of esteem and have done extraordinary preaching over the years, been involved in movements, but are very um, tight-knit group of men and leaders within conservative evangelicalism. Um, and we now see this kind of terrible controlling behaviour that there seems to have been. And I think that, so those of us that are, so those are within that community that were holding highly to scripture, this is, we have to really look at this um, as well. Um, because we can't, it's all very, we, how can we speak? You know, when we've got the plank in our eye. And then just finally to whiz through this now. The demographics, 2.7 Muslims in the UK. This is 10 years ago, bear in mind, because that was the last census. 4.8% of the population. Um, so 2.7 million Muslims. Muslim population uh, has grown 105,000 uh, 5, in 1960. Um, the Pew Research Centre is 8.2% by 2030. Mu Muhammad is the number one name. 1,500 mosques in our nation, only 16% of them purpose-built. 150,000 men come out in Birmingham to break Eid, all right. Um, Muslim parents putting, making demands of schools, yes. So you're beginning to see the clash. Churches converting to mosques. In, in Synod last week, there was a multi-faith room in Synod. So that's the snapshot of where are we in the Church of England. So I think the big thing is we have the schools, we have the institution, we've handed it to the state, we've not seized the wheel. But let me just say to the Bride of Christ, um, it doesn't work just, I mean, Church of England was given a gift. But the point is, the real Bride, we, are the, we, we can seize the wheel. We've got to work to seize the wheel. Um, and to, and um, we've got to, uh, that's what we've got to believe in and believe that God will act. But the challenge of Islam... Um, is that there are, how many mosques did I say there were? 16,000 16, mosques. Churches. Sorry, 16,000 churches, 1,500 mosques. Yeah. 2.4 million Muslims 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, there'll be another census next year. Um, it's going to be higher again. They believe and they do make demands on the schools. They will seize the will. They are seizing the will. They do make demands on the culture. So there's the snapshot.